Um, let's go to the Word together. We'll have a special time as we, uh, as in our hearts, we look to the Lord together. Let's pray. So, Father, we take this time now. We are, we are thankful for the opportunity. We pray that you would open your words to to us, that your spirit would quicken us afresh as we consider this incredible uh, event, this story, this amazing uh, center of the gospel this morning, or that you so love the world that you, you sent your son. Oh, thank you, God. Quicken us. Give us thankfulness and praise and wonder and reverence in our hearts, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we have had a wonderful journey through uh, Luke chapter 1, and today we arrive in Luke 2, where the actual record of the birth is found. In the opening seven verses, we had the reading earlier. And Luke, in his manner, in the most simple, uh, understated way, unfolds this incredible uh, event in a few verses. It's astounding. Um, It's perhaps the most commonly known passage in the Bible because of Christmas, along with perhaps, uh, you know, Matthew 1 and 2, the Christmas story, uh, where, where the origin of all of the festivities, the cards, the carols, the, the, all of the things that are connected to that, the Christmas story. It's a familiar story, but, oh, but uh, it may it be so fresh to us this morning as believers who really have a, a, an understanding uh, by the Spirit of God and through the Word of God what, what these uh, verses un- unveil to us. We're going to start this morning by looking at a prophecy, a prophecy that is found in the book of Micah, written 500 years before the time. It's a messianic prophecy of immense importance, because through this prophecy, the understanding of where the Messiah would be born is found. That the the Jewish people had this understanding through the prophets and particularly through this prophecy that the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ, the King, would be born and come from Bethlehem. So in Micah 5.2 we read, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. But you, Bethlehem, and notice Ephrathah, this is to distinguish it from another Bethlehem in Zebulun. Ephrathah means uh, fruitfulness. It refers to the land, a very fruitful place. It says, of course, could bear no fruit, no greater fruit than the Messiah himself to be born in this little village. And though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth the ruler. For out of you, this, this little village, and yet this great purpose and fulfillment, the great destiny 
that this little town would have. The anointed king, the Christ, would finally be born here. And notice the last description in the verse. Whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Now that should catch our attention because this is speaking about one who would be born This is speaking about a man who would be a king, a ruler, the Messiah. And yet it says his goings forth are from old, from everlasting. How can that be? We read in Psalm 55, 19, God will hear and afflict them, even he who abides from of old. Same phrase, speaking about God. In Habakkuk 1.12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Same phrase, from of old, from everlasting. Understood that God was from everlasting. And yet here it speaks in the same language of the Messiah, the Promised One, the Ruler, the Christ, who would come, was from everlasting. And that's a mystery, a puzzle. It's hard to work out unless there is some illumination in our life that we understand John 1.1, that in the beginning was the Word who was with God, who was God. And that same Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But we have God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, from everlasting, amazing. This is a well-known prophecy because, of course, remember in Matthew 2, when Herod asked the scribes where the Christ was to be born, he, he, they bring his attention to this prophecy. Let's read it in Matthew 2, 4. When he had gathered the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written of the prophet. And then they quote the the prophecy. They didn't say, oh boy, that's a good question. I I don't know. Do we know that? Give us a week or so. We'll go study the scriptures. No, they knew immediately. Oh, that's easy. The prophet has spoken. It's clearly understood. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. You might notice when you read that in Matthew 2 that they leave off the last phrase that he's from old or from everlasting, which is curious perhaps because the natural mind could not fathom that part of the prophecy, but just that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Later in Christ's ministry, in in, uh, John 7, there are some who said, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? There it is again. So Bethlehem, this little town, was clearly known for the birthplace of David and also clearly understood that it would also be the birthplace of the Messiah. A little bit later in this chapter 2, where the angel makes the announcement, he says, Born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And of course, these astounding truths are captured for us in the hymns that have become seasonal hymns, we call them Christmas carols, that are written to capture these these incredible truths. For example, the carol of O Little Town of Bethlehem. Let me read you a, a few lines. 
O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth that everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wandering love. O morning stars together proclaim thy holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. O little town of Bethlehem. And as we've taught, the, the, the word or name Bethlehem means, does anyone remember? The house of bread. The house of bread. So the house of bread in the fruitful land was to be the place where Jesus was to be born. The house of bread, that's, that's fitting. Because remember, Jesus referred to himself as the bread. He called himself the bread of life, the bread of God, and the bread that comes down from heaven in John chapter 6. And at the Last Supper, when he took the unleavened and he broke the bread, he said, this bread is my body. So how fitting it is. That the bread of life, the bread of God that came down from heaven would be born in the house of bread in Bethlehem. Now, it's only Matthew who mentions how the prophecy is fulfilled, or rather that the prophecy is fulfilled. It's only Matthew that quotes uh, uh, Micah 5.2. But it's Luke who shows us how the prophecy is actually fulfilled. Let's have a look there together. And it's a good question because um, if the prophecy said that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem and yet the angel went to, to Nazareth near Galilee, then, then we have a discrepancy here, how the stage is set. How can this happen? That Mary the Virgin is visited by Gabriel, says you will have a son, he will be the son of the highest, he will be the Messiah. And one might raise the question, well, isn't the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem? Yes, good question. How can that happen? And here we go to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And we see how they come from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass. Oh, we love those words. Because as believers, we understand the incredible working of God, the plan of God, the power and the providence of God. Working sometimes seemingly in behind the scenes, or almost invisibly, and yet surely God is at work. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, of course, this particular emperor at the time didn't understand that his decree was going to work to fulfill prophecy, yet it certainly was. Proverbs 21.1 says the heart of the king is, is turned by God like waters are easily turned. And we might also marvel at his hand of providence in our lives. The natural-minded Christian could easily miss that and put things down to happenstance or chance or freak accident or coincidence. But as we grow as believers in our faith and our understanding, we are very slow to, to make those conclusions. 
but we are rather quicker to say, oh, God is at work. That we can notice him in the gentle breeze or the open door or the chance meeting or even something that seems tragic at the moment. We understand that God can and does work through it all. And we wonder also at his providence. Remember how Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God turned this for good. In Romans 8.28 also. Luke chapter 2 verse 2. And this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. You go to your town of birth, you would register your name and your occupation and your property and your family. Register for tax purposes. And it came to pass, verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee. It's always up when you go to Jerusalem, uh, even though you're coming down the map or you're going south, whatever, you're always going up to Jerusalem. Up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. This is perhaps a a four-day journey or so, about 90 miles south to the city of David, to Bethlehem. Here's another uh, carol that captures some of these thoughts for us. Uh, Once in royal David's city. This was written, by the way, in 1848 by a believer from Dublin, a, a lady, Cecil Francis Alexander. And one of the reasons that she wrote her poems, many of which became hymns, if you like, carols, um, uh, she wrote All Things Bright and Beautiful, many other hymns. And one of the reasons she wrote them is in the simplest terms, she wanted to, to capture these lofty theological truths so that children could sing them and understand them. And these, this was put into a, a, a hymnal or, or a book of songs for children. Once in royal David city stood a lowly cattle shed where a mother mother laid her baby in a manger for his bed. Mary was that mother mild, and Jesus Christ, her little child. He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. And his shelter was a stable, and his cradle was a stall. With the poor and mean and lowly lived on earth our Savior, holy. So verse 6, so it was that while they were there, the days were complete, completed for her to be delivered. And again, we, when we read that, we say, oh, look at that. The timing so perfect that it just happened, that all of this would be worked so that the time it was for her to give birth uh, was to coincide with her being in Bethlehem, divinely orchestrated. So it's amazing, isn't it? It's, it's, when we read these words, they're so simple, so understated. When we sing these carols, we can so easily just slide over these incredible truths. But we do well to take pause and to take note of what's being said. In the corner of this little town, this obscure little town, was the most incredible of events that was happening. All of heaven would have been looking into this moment. The angelic host, in some measure, 
understanding what was happening. The incarnation that the eternal uh, Son, God the Son, was to take on human flesh. And not only that, but actually to be conceived in the womb and to be born as a baby. Incredible. This was happening on that night. Verse 7, so she brought forth her firstborn son. Notice firstborn son. Why does it say that? Because she was going to have other children. And she did, and that's recorded in the scriptures. Uh, She wasn't a perpetual virgin. She was virgin at birth, but she had other children. So this was her firstborn. When we read about Jesus being the son of God, it's his only begotten son. Because God only had one son, but Mary had others. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and she laid him in a manger. Now, of course, as we know, the manger, like an animal feeding trough. Uh, It could be that they were in a stable area or a local cave or something where the animals were kept. That's what's implied. That's where we get that idea. We can't be 100% sure. But here's another uh, carol that captures some of these words. This was written, by the way, the earliest manuscript, 1650, and the earliest print in 1760. Imagine that. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Let nothing dismay you. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Old tidings of comfort and joy. Or this, or this carol. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And the chorus, oh, fall on your knees and hear the angels' voices, oh, night divine, when Christ was born. When Christ was born, when the Word became flesh, when God dwelt among us, oh, Emmanuel, God with us. All fall on our knees and hear the angels' voices. Amazing. It highlights the incredible humility that we read about in Philippians 2. For though he, Jesus Christ, was in very nature God, sorry, that should be he, did not use his equality with God to his own advantage, but rather emptied himself, took on the nature of a servant, and being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And in this passage, there are two incredible uh, uh, events highlighted, both which express astounding humility of God. One is the incarnation, and secondly, that he was obedient even to the cross. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And in this culture, they would take uh, strips of linen, and they would swaddle the baby uh, this way for protection and warmth, etc. And this made me consider another verse in Luke. At the end of Luke, it says, Then he was taken down. And they wrapped his body in linen and laid it in a tomb that was cut out of the rock. He was laid in a manger, and at the end of Luke, his body was laid in a tomb. And as Christians, we understand the connection. 
For this purpose was he born. He was not our saviour by virtue of his birth alone, but became our saviour by virtue of his death. That he would be laid in a tomb, and of course he would rise again on the third day. Now, let's pose a question. Why was he laid in a manger? And there it's answered for us. Because there was no room in the inn, or no space in the inn, sometimes you have an idea, it means there was no room. You have room number you know, 204 and 205, and there were no rooms left. It doesn't mean that. There was no space in the inn. And the word inn is misleading. Uh, we've seen all the nativities where you have the innkeeper and the little hotel, and there's no rooms left. But that's not really what's being said. The word inn is the same Greek word that used for the upper room when they met in the upper room. For the Last Supper, it's the same word. A better idea would be a guest room in a house uh, for lodging or something like that. In other words, there was no there was no space for him. There was no there were no guest rooms available in Bethlehem. So they laid him in a manger. And again, probably at the back of the house, a shelter for the animals, a stable, a cave, whatever it might be. The point is, there was no room for him, so this is where they laid him. And this would typify the ministry of Christ. Right from the beginning, there was no room for him. And this would typify him through his public ministry and even through the ages and even today. There is no room for him in the lives and hearts of so many. John 1, 10 and 11 puts it this way. He was in the world and the world knew him not. He came to his own and his own, what? Received him not. God so loved the world, he gave his son. His son laid down his life. Yet there was no room for him. He was rejected in the day by his own. He was crucified. And I want you to consider as we begin to close this morning that the different scene between the inn or the guest room and the manger scene they're very different one is prepared and clean and made ready to receive a guest the other is dirty it is not fit, it is not worthy and yet that is where he lay Even in that simple picture, the gospel rings so clear and loudly, doesn't it? He didn't come for those who were righteous. He didn't come for those who had their life together and felt that they could walk the religious line. He didn't come for those who were self-sufficient in their own works. He came for those who would understand their great need. For those who could bend the knee in humility and simply say, Oh, I am unworthy. I don't know. I, I don't know if I, I'm not worthy that you would come into my life, that you would look to me, that you would save me, that you would bless me, that you would use me. I'm not worthy. But the question of the gospel is not, are you worthy? It's, is there room? Is there room? For in the heart and life of someone who in simple humility and faith can respond to the gospel and say, I understand I am not worthy, but I also want to believe the gospel. That he says that he came for sinners. 
This is the good news in Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save sinners. And Paul, as he records that in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, this is a faithful saying. God came to save sinners of whom I am chief, he said. And that simple confession there, that recognition, oh, I am the chief of sinners. If, I, if getting to heaven was based on my merit, oh, I am disqualified in a heartbeat, in a moment. There is no hope for me. And that should be the confession of every man, every woman, every child. How could it be I would think that my good works somehow would make atonement for my sins? How foolish that conclusion would be. Our court of law doesn't even agree with that. It cries out that justice, that there must be payment for sin, that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus said, this is my body that is given for you. This is why I came. And he broke the bread and he blessed it. And he said, this is my body that is given. This is my blood that is given. So that we could be freely saved. Sinners. Unworthy, undeserving, and yet beautifully saved by grace. Wow. Amazing. And when we are saved and the Holy Spirit comes into our life and we find a place where we can grow in our faith and understanding as believers and as a church, we sing those carols with such understanding and such wonder, not with familiarity, Oh, we just sing them as if it's a seasonal song. Oh, no, our hearts are raptured again and again. We understand who it was, why he came, what the result is, what is the effect. Oh, this is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. And I am unworthy. And that he would come to me. That he would look to me. That he would save me. I don't understand it. It is amazing grace how sweet the sound. But the religious leaders in Jesus' time, he came to his own and his own received him not. They did not see their need. Jesus said to them, listen, I didn't come for the righteous, but for the sinner. The doctor doesn't come for him who is well, but him who is sick. And your problem, he would say to the Pharisees, is you don't see that you are sick, spiritually speaking, that you are sinful, that you are in need of grace. This is the first prerequisite to finding grace, to finding salvation, is to see your need for it. So this manger scene, it it captures a a wonderful gospel message for us. Shows us the grace of God. Religion might say, you must make yourself ready. You must measure up. You must get your act together. You must repent and change your life and polish your boots and come to church and get it all your life in order and stop doing that and start doing that and then... Maybe you get to the point where finally you are accepted. Religion may say that in different ways, in different measures. Oh, but how different the gospel is. And how we rejoice again and again about how we first heard it and the person who first shared it with us or preached it to us. We say, oh, thank you for the gospel. That it rang so true. It rang in my ears and in my heart and my life was changed because of it. 
And I no longer sing those Christmas carols with blind familiarity. But I sing them with wonder and thankfulness as with every hymn, as with every worship song, as with every verse that my heart would hang on in the scriptures. I say, oh, this is a wonder that God, oh, Emmanuel, God with me. That God is in my life. That I am, uh, amazingly, I am able to say that I am a child of God. I am in the family of God. I am in Christ. I, am, I have the blessed assurance of being him with, with Him forever. What could be greater news than that? The question of the gospel is, is there room? And often when you share the gospel with someone, it's important to have the, the understanding that they have that misconception. The natural man does. You don't have to have a religious background to have it. We just have that idea that I, that I am not what I should be, and therefore I must do something to make myself worthy. And the gospel strips that down and says, there is none righteous, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all stand on equal ground. There is no hope, there is no way, there is no answer, but in Jesus and in the gospel. So when we speak to them, we say to them, it's not about being worthy or being right, or, but it's about, is there room? Do you recognize the need you have for God in your life? Just come as you are. Just as I am, without one plea, that your blood was shed for me. Here's another carol. Joy to the world. This was written in 1719. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And someone might say, perhaps here this morning or listening online today or another day, they might say, well, I understand that, but, but not yet. I'm not ready yet. Today's not the day. Okay. You're free. There is no pressure. It's your life. It's your decision. But be careful with that. Because you can't count tomorrow until tomorrow. Today is sure. It's the opportunity. This moment you have. Mary and Joseph are knocking now at the door. Or in Revelation 3.20, Jesus is knocking on the door saying, He who hears my voice and opens unto me, I will come in and have fellowship with him. Today is the day of salvation, the scriptures say. So the one who would say, well, I'll put it off, maybe later in my life, be careful with that. First of all, you are gambling with your destiny, but secondly, you are missing so much to live your life without knowing him. It is the greatest, most fulfilling thing to have a relationship with him. So in John 1.10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But look at the next verse. But as many as received him, 
To them he gave the power to become children of God. To those who what? Believe. That's the only action. That's the only condition. That is the key that unlocks the door. It is to those who believe in his name. Galatians 4.4 puts it this way. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive, there it is again, the adoption as sons. He gave them power to be children of God. There it is again, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then the heir of God through Christ. What an amazing gospel. What an amazing story or history or reality that we are considering not only this day, this December, this year, but every Sunday and more than that, every day of our lives. We consider these incredible truths. We'll finish with this hymn, this carol that was written in 1865. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him praise, the babe, the son of Mary. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christians fear, for sinners hear, the silent word is pleading. Nails, spear shall pierce him through, the cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe the Son of Mary. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we just stand in awe of you this morning. Our hearts just stand in wonder at your word, at your goodness, your plan of salvation, your gift of grace. Oh, we, we stand amazed this morning afresh. Thank you how you minister to our hearts. Oh, we sense it, God. We sense, Lord, that we have eaten once again. We have been fed once again. That you have ministered and quickened our hearts in faith once again. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for each one here, each one listening online. We thank you for the simple gospel. Perhaps there's one who would, in this moment, want to open their heart and say, Oh Lord, I, I, I heard this morning. I heard the gospel. I understand I'm not worthy. I'm a sinner. Oh, but you are the Savior. I ask you to come into my life, unworthy as I am, and that you would find a home. You would find a dwelling place. That you would be received and become my personal Savior. Please save me today by grace. Through faith, I thank you for, for that. In Jesus' name, we pray for each one, each family, those who have sicknesses and challenges and troubles. You know the needs, the prayers. Please hear us 
for our brothers and sisters this morning who are sick or struggling or troubled physically, mentally, financially, emotionally, in their families, whatever it might be, all hear us this day, answer us, we ask and pray. And hear us now as we sing and praise you in this worship song. In Jesus' name, amen.